Hello, everybody. This is Parshas Parshas Truma, and the Beis Halevi asks a question. He says, "Why did the Torah choose to put Parshas Mishpatim, the Parsha that deals with all the laws of money and interpersonal relationships, between the Parsha of Yisrael, which talks about Matan Torah and Moshe Rabbeinu bringing down the Luchas, and Parshas Truma, which seemingly should be the one right after Parshas Yisrael?" Parshas Truma tells us about building the Mishkan, where to put the Luchas in, and all the ideas of having a resting place for the Shekhinah down here on earth. Why is Parshas Mishpatim seemingly awkwardly stuck in, in between the two of them? And he explains, because the Torah is coming to tell us a very important lesson. A lot of times people get very swept up with a desire to do something holy and spiritual and magnificent. They want to use their money to go build the Mishkan. They want to use their money to go build something spiritual, something spiritual and special and big. But they forget that a lot of times they have other obligations that come first. They first have to pay people they owe money to. They have to make sure they're not taking money that's not theirs. There's all these, so to speak, mundane and boring laws that come before that. Only after a person has made sure that everything he's done is correct, he's taken care of all his obligations to other people, and he's made sure all the money he has is truly his, only then can he go and use his money for a noble cause, such as building the Mishkan. And that's why Parshas Mishpatim must come first, before anything else, before we can start the big task of building a Mishkan. The Parsha tells us that Kash Baruch tells Maisha to go and take a truma, take a donation, from anybody asher yidvenu libay, anybody who wants to give, anybody who wants to donate with a giving heart. And the Mepharshim asked that you find that later on, when Shleim HaMelech went and built the Beis HaMikdash, there was no such thing that it was by a voluntary donation. There was no need for it to be yidvenu libay. Shleim HaMelech put a tax on the Jewish people, and everyone had to pay up. We're building a base at Mikdash for Klai Yisrael. Everyone's got to chip in. There's no such thing, only if you want, you can go and give out of the goodness of your heart. And in fact, Halach is in Shulchan Aruch, that any city that has 10 Jewish men, can, they can force each other to go and donate money that's needed to build a shul. So why is it when it comes to building of the Mishkan specifically that it's done specifically through Nediva slave, through everyone give what you want, only if you want to give, you can give. So there's different answers given. I saw on the Sefer, Oyo Moshe, he says an interesting idea. He says that the Meshachachim and Parshish Bamidbar points out that there's a fundamental difference between the Mishkan and the Mikdash. The Mishkan, says the Meshachachim, there was no one specific place where the Mishkan was. The whole idea of a Mishkan was that it traveled with the Jewish people throughout their time in the desert. So the holiness of the Mishkan was created through the walls and the kind of the blankets, all the ureas, things that covered the Mishkan. The materials of the Mishkan created the holiness of the place that it was on. Therefore, says the Oyel Moshe, therefore, and specifically by the Mishkan, the materials of the Mishkan had to be given wholeheartedly with all the love that Klai Yisrael has for HaKadosh Baruch because that's what's needed to make the Mishkan have the ability to create Kedusha wherever it goes. The Mikdash, however, was holy. The place where the Mikdash was on is holy from before and continuously after. Like the Gemara tells us that technically, even though there's no base of Mikdash, if you find the place of the Mizbeach, you can bring Karbanas there already, as long as everyone's, in, as everyone's Tahar. The Mikdash itself, the area itself, is a Makkam Kaidish. So you don't need the materials of the Mikdash to be given through the willingness of the heart of the people because you don't need that level to create the Kedusha. The Kedusha is already there and present. 
That is the pshat that I heard from the Oyel Moshe. However, the Osnayim Matayrus has a whole different idea. The Osnayim Matayrus says as follows. He says, besides the fact that you find this distinction between the Mikdash and the Mishkan, there's another question. We all know every once in a while, nowadays almost every week, there's a new campaign, a fundraising campaign. And the Jewish people, of course, they give, you know, and everyone gives eventually. But here, when it came to the Mishkan, you see something so strange. They said, okay, anybody who wants to give can give. Within the next two days, they had more than enough. Everything they wanted was given more than more than they ever asked for. And what's even stranger, says the Zanayimah is that when it came to the Mishkan, they didn't ask for cash donations. The Mishkan, the donations are very specific. You have to give the exact materials that were needed for the building of the Mishkan. You gave the 11 materials listed in the Psukim, Zahav, Tchelas, Agam, and Cheshes, all of those materials that were needed for the building, and anything extra, they said that was too much. We don't need it to build anymore. They said stop. They didn't take all the extra stuff and sell it and use the money to keep funding the Mishkan and funding all the Karbanas. Why here, says the Zion Terry, do they have to give specifically the actual raw materials that were needed for building the Mishkan? And he explains as follows. He says the Gemara tells us that unlike the Mikdash, which eventually destroyed both the first and the second, the Mishkan was never destroyed. Says the Gemara, the Mishkan, the walls of the Mishkan sunk into the ground, and the enemies of Jewish, the enemies of the Jewish people never got a hold of it. And even the Kalim, the vessels of the Mishkan, says Rebbeinu even though they eventually got destroyed, their essence, their root, the spiritual root of what they represented, stayed Ad in Shemayim till this very day. Which means, says Aznayim that the Mishkan was eternal. The Mishkan represented something that was going to be there forever. No, it was never going to be destroyed in its spiritual and its physical sense. And therefore, if you want something to last eternally, if you want something to be forever, you need to put heart into it. You need to have Nadiva slave. You need to have coming willingly. That's the only thing that makes things last. And that's why when it came to the Mishkan specifically, it had to be given willingly. You had to give the actual item that was being given. And that's what made the Mishkan what it was. And that's what made it last forever. Balturim tells us that Torah says that Venusnu and they will give the people donating to the Mishkan. He says that the word Venusnu is an interesting word. It can be spelled from front to back. It's always Vav Nun Saf Nun Vav. So either way you read it, it goes backwards and forwards. And he says that's the point is to teach us that when a person gives to a holy cause, he never loses out because it comes right back to him. Whatever he gives comes right back. So it's always something to keep in mind when we do have these campaigns that there's nothing to lose, only to, only to be gained. The Torah tells us when they built the Aron, they put Badim, poles which are used to carry the Aron. But the Torah says specifically when it comes to the Aron that these poles had to stay inside the Aron for forever. Even when the Aron rested in the first place of Mikdash for 400 years, they never took the Badim, these poles, out of the Aron. And many, many different Mepharshim explain why that is. Why is it specifically that the Aron always had to have its poles? The Meshachachma explains that the point was to show that although the Aron had poles, really those poles didn't work to carry it. As we know, that the Aron actually carried those who carried it. So to show that the poles were not needed to carry it, the poles always remained there, even when the Aron stayed there, to give over that message. But Rav Hirsch explains it differently. He says... The Torah is trying to teach us a message. We know that the Aaron represents Torah, represents a person's connection to Yiddishkeit and to Torah. And a lot of times people think that, you know, look, I am where I am. I'm going to stay here. And if I get it here, if I hear a good shear online, amazing. 
you know, if someone comes and tells me a great Dvar Torah, I'll listen to it. I'm not going to go and pick myself up to go out to Shir at night or to go learn somewhere. I don't have the patience. I don't have the energy. Says the Torah, no. The Aaron never parked anywhere. The Aaron always had poles attached because the Aaron was always ready to go. If you want to connect to Yiddish guy, you want to connect to Torah, you got to be willing to pick yourself up and to move and to go places and to grow because that's how a person connects to Torah. If he's willing to pick himself up and go places to gain from a Torah that's out there. At the end of the parasha, the parasha describes the different materials that were needed for the Mishkan. And it says that there was pegs, there was Yisedes, and Rashi describes that these pegs were needed to hold down the curtains that made up the perimeter of the Mishkan so they wouldn't get blown away by the wind. And Rashi says something interesting. Rashi says, I don't know, says Rashi, if the way these pegs worked, that they were shoved into the ground and they were held by being stuck into the ground, or if they were simply just very heavy and they were weighted down the curtains from blowing. And Moshe Feinstein in Drash Moshe says that Rashi's, in a homiletic way, in a drash way, Rashi's giving us a very deep point. That in life, there's always winds. There's always bad influence. There's always external factors that are trying to push us to change and to do the wrong thing. And there's different ways for a person to hold steadfast and not get swept away by those winds. The most simple way and the best way is that a person sticks himself into the ground, which is a metaphor for sticking himself into a place where he's surrounded by others who are strong in their amuna and they're doing the right thing, and together they can withstand the strong winds. But, says Ramesha, there comes times when a person doesn't have that luxury, where he's not surrounded by good friends, where he can stick himself amongst them and use them to help protect himself against those winds. Sometimes a person is forced to withstand it with his own weight, with his own character, with his own ideals, and a person has to build himself up to be ready for that eventuality. And the person has to take the opportunity that while he's amongst friends and people who give him a good influence, to use that to develop his own character so that if he ever gets put in that position where it's him against everybody else and he has to withstand all the external winds, he'll have the weight, so to speak, and the confidence and the convictions to go against whatever comes his way. So I want to end off with one last idea. Back in the beginning of the parasha, the Torah lists the materials. One of the last things listed is Avne Shoyham, the special stones that were used on the ephod, on the shoulders, and on the chayshin of the kayin gadol. And the question that's asked is why is why are these stones listed last? Seemingly, these are expensive, beautiful diamonds and gems. They should be listed towards the beginning. They're the most expensive. Now, Rachaim Akalaj explains that the reason why they're listed last is because the Medrash tells us that ultimately, how did the Jewish people get these fancy stones? Who donated them? So the Medrash tells us the Nisim were the ones who donated them. They donated them last after everyone else had donated everything else. And the way they even got them was that there was a miracle that the clouds brought these special stones to the Jews in the desert, and then the Siam got them, and they donated them to the Mishkan. Says our Chaim Gosh, Torah is trying to teach us a very important lesson, that although the diamonds and the stones that the Nesim gave for the Mishkan were truly probably the most expensive donations to the whole Mishkan, but they didn't come with a lot of effort. The Nesim got them from the clouds, they didn't have to do much for them. Whereas the wool the linen, and all the other fabrics that everyone else sat there and made and twisted and spun to build the Mishkan, you're right, it was worth less, but it was given with effort, it was given because people really wanted to give to the Mishkan, and that was listed first because that's the most precious in Hashem's eyes. We should all have a wonderful Shabbat, we all be Zeicheh, to be able to build in our own homes, and Mitzvah Hashem eventually see the Mishkan and the Mikdash back for all of us. We should have a wonderful Shabbos.